Well, good morning again, 59th Street family. Uh, as we're still in the season of celebrating the new year, uh, I would actually like to start a new sermon series with you all uh, titled Living Testimony, where we explore how the Christian faith is meant to be a testimony proclaimed not just by our lips, uh, but a testimony proclaimed through our lives and through our actions. And as we start the series based on 1 John, uh, we reach a very interesting point in early church history. Um, just for a little bit of context before we go into a deep dive in this series on 1 John, why was John writing this letter to begin with? And so during this time, as John was alive, as he was leading his own church, uh, false teachings about the gospel and false teachings about Christianity uh, kind of began to spread. <clears throat> throughout the church, kind of like wildfire. Now, we don't know the exact details of what is being said, uh, but we do know enough that this false message spread enough doubt into people's lives that they started to question whether they should remain Christian. And some of them have entirely left the faith, while other Christians kind of stood on the edge of a knife, not sure where to fall, and they're just balancing, just trying to maintain their faith. Um, but they're also ready, or they also acknowledge that they're about to tip over at any second. And so in response to this kind of crisis that's going on at the church, John, he writes a message. He writes this epistle to the church to speak a word of certainty during this midst of uncertainty. And later on in the rest of the epistle, we are going to see how John encourages the people to navigate through their faith while they still feel like they are lost. And speaking on the idea or theme of lostness, uh, for me myself, I, I personally make a habit every morning uh, to get sunlight in my eyes when the sun rises each morning. So normally I wake up at like 4 a.m. and then I just kind of like stare out the window. And so sometimes if, if the weather isn't too bad, you know, if it's not oppressively hot, if it's not 14 degrees outside, I, I might step out uh, for 15, 30 minutes, walk around, stare at the sky, get some sunlight in my eyes. Uh, but other times when it is too hot or too cold, I might just stare out my window, my eastern facing window. But what I noticed after doing this for, for roughly uh, over a year, what I noticed was that the position of the sun kind of shifts throughout the year. We're taught, right, the sun rises on the east, sets on the west, but throughout the year, what is actually east kind of shifts and moves around. Now, obviously for us, I don't think this makes any difference in our lives whatsoever, but I thought, how in the world did people navigate using the stars and the sun thousands of years ago if everything just kept on shifting throughout the year? Or if it was incredibly cloudy and you couldn't even see the sun or stars and you're out in the middle of the sea, how would you know where to go? And so just thinking about this, there's the sense or this feeling that there must have been certainly uncertainties when navigating in the past. But during the early 10th century uh, in China, all of that changed. Um, according to Chinese tradition, uh, the first needle compass was invented by the legendary Chinese scientist um, and inventor. His name was Shen Kua, or in Cantonese, I believe it's Sam Ku. I forget. Um, but this person, he made incredible, significant contributions from math to astronomy and even engineering. And in one of his books, 
titled The Dream Pool Essays, which is a really cool name for a book. He was studying the properties of this rock called a lodestone. And a lodestone is a naturally magnetic mineral. And what Shen noticed was that if you took a needle and you rubbed it against the lodestone, the needle would be magnetized. And once you suspend this needle on a string or if you float it on top of a bowl of water, it would always align itself to true north. No matter which way you're facing, it would, it would still point the same direction. Unlike the sun that shifts throughout the year, this compass, this needle always pointed forward. And so rather than looking at shifting stars or suns, which can be blocked off by the clouds, we now had something that allowed people to accurately determine what was true north. And of course, this, this changed civilization entirely, right? This allowed people to, for the first time, safely and accurately travel throughout the world. Uh, it's what allowed people to venture off onto unknown destinations with courage and with confidence. And just as we can always rely on a compass, well, actually, I don't think anyone uses a compass these days, more on GPS, but just as we use a compass or GPS to reliably bring us where we need to go, the message that we're going to receive today in 1 John about the first-hand encounter of God, this message helps us reliably and accurately navigate through our faith and through our lives in order that we may reach a destination. And that destination is joy. And that destination is a fellowship with God. And so as we read our passage today, I encourage you to kind of pick up on these themes of reliability, on the themes of joy, which is our final destination. And so let's take a look at our passage today uh, from 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And it reads, <clears throat> That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, uh, sorry, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we write this to make our joy complete. Now, as we live through our Christian faith, uh, the reliability of God's message, I believe, is an essential part of it. Uh, we live in a world, obviously, that's filled with conflicting ideologies and false teachings, and sometimes these false teachings might even kind of slip into our own understanding of Scripture, and the consequences of that are obviously quite enormous. And so I believe it's important for us to have, first, a firm foundation in the truth of the gospel. And so as John deals with a similar situation roughly 2,000 years ago of competing ideologies and competing narratives, we see that John establishes the gospel as something that is rock solid, as something that is reliable and trustworthy, as something that is based on his firsthand experience of Jesus himself. If we look at the first verse, we see John telling us 
what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This phrase clearly emphasizes the firsthand nature of the message that John is hearing. Also a fun fact here, if you see the very first line, what was from the beginning, that should immediately make you think of what Dennis read earlier in John chapter one. So this is John the epistle. He's referencing his own book, his own gospel, John chapter one, which we hear the word of life in the beginning, which is also a reference all the way back to Genesis. And so what John is saying here is he has touched God. He has seen God with his own eyes. And the author and his community, his colleagues, have not just heard about Jesus or read about him. You know, these people didn't read about Jesus from a book. They've actually seen him. They've experienced God personally. And that firsthand encounter gives these people a very unique perspective and a very deep understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so as John continues to write in verse two, he kind of reiterates this point over and over again as he tells us that the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And so the basic message that John is trying to convey is that the gospel message that he's going to deliver in later chapters and later verses is something that is reliable. It is something that is trustworthy, and it is something that is based on firsthand experiences of Jesus himself. And this is so important for our faith because by John telling us this, he is effectively telling us that our faith, our belief in Christ, it's not just a story. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It is based on real events. It is based on real experiences and on a real human being. It's not theory. It's not conjecture. But the gospel is rooted in the experience of John and the other disciples as they encountered the physical Christ who called them, who died in front of them, and was resurrected before their very eyes. And this is important because if one of the end goals for us as Christians is true and lasting joy, then reliable firsthand experiences help us to distinguish between what is wisdom and what is foolishness. These firsthand experiences tell us where joy can truly be found and where it cannot. It tells us where we can have a peace of mind. It tells us where true security can be found. And so as we ourselves, as we Christians, as we have a firsthand encounter, a firsthand experience of God through scripture, we see that these things, peace, joy, they can be found nowhere else besides God. And why is that? Because the person that John encountered is not an ordinary person. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a wise teacher. He is, as John says, the word of life. He's the message of eternal life that came from the Father and appeared to John. He is God himself, revealed to all humanity to see and to touch. And if indeed 
this person is God and he is also the message from God, then we know that it is only in Christ that life in all of its fullness can be found and nowhere else. Of course, you know, the question remains, or you might ask, well, that's great, but how can we experience this life you talk about in all of its fullness? How can we, how can we take this message and really, truly experience joy? And one of the ways that John highlights this fullness of life is through fellowship. In light of what John experiences, he once again sends out an invitation letter to those who fell from the faith or those who are kind of teetering on the edge. He sends them this letter, this literally this letter, to tell them that they are once again invited to fellowship. In 1 John 1.3, we are told that the purpose of the letter is to share the message of Jesus and to encourage fellowship with God and with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And this emphasis on fellowship is important for us as Christians because it reminds us of the importance of relationships in our Christian lives. You see, we're not called as Christians just to believe certain theological truths or to follow certain rules. Those are incredibly important, but that's not it. That's not the entire package. The thing is, all of us here are called and invited into relationships. We are invited into a relationship with each other, but we're also invited into a relationship with our triune God. And it is only through these relationships that we experience the fullness of God's love and the fullness of God's grace. And so starting first with fellowship with one another, this is so crucial for us to grow as Christians because we quickly learn as we progress in our faith, we quickly learn that a deep faith, a solid faith is something that we actually cannot achieve alone. That as we are invited into fellowship, we're invited to support and be supported by others. We're invited into a community of believers where we are able to encourage one another, where we are able to pray for each other, where we're able to hold each other accountable. And fellowship in Greek is koinonia, and one of the nuances of this word is that it can also be translated as partnership, which is maybe something a little more clear than fellowship, partnership. And so when we are invited into koinonia, we're invited into partnership with one another. And so more than just meeting together and discussing sports or the latest drama on TV or on Netflix, we're invited into a partnership. We're invited into a partnership with one another in order for us to mutually, as one body, move closer and closer to God. But in our passage, we see that John not only invites the people into partnership or fellowship with him and his colleagues, but we also see that one of his end goals is for the people to experience what it is like to be invited into a partnership with God. As I stated earlier, one of the reasons for John's own faith is his firsthand experience of God. And so when we are invited into fellowship, we are also invited into a fellowship with God where we are given the opportunity to experience God with our own senses. The thing is, often we hear, whether it's from preachers or from your friends, we often hear that God is loving. We often hear that 
God is merciful or that God is patient or that God seeks the salvation of our bodies and our soul. But without this fellowship, without this partnering with God, these truths only stay as intellectual truths. It's only something that we know with our minds. But the, tr- but the trouble is, or the problem is, the truth doesn't travel to our hearts. And the reason for this is because we don't have a deep fellowship with the God we read and hear so much about. We don't have this quote-unquote firsthand experience. Kind of to illustrate this, uh, a few days ago, I was having a discussion with my cousin about some of his travel plans in the spring. And he mentioned about how he was planning to go to Korea with his, uh, uh, with his wife and his uh, four-year-old daughter, um, who was absolutely adorable. And he was, tell- he was recounting a story where he was telling his coworkers about like, yeah, I'm planning to bring my family to Korea. It's going to be great. And his coworkers and his friends would say, Joe, like, there's nothing to do there. It's so boring. You only go to Korea to eat. Like, there's nothing else to do. And so my cousin, he asked them, well, have you ever been there? Like, how do you know? Like, have you been there yourself? And their answer to that question was, no, we, we haven't been there. Um, so he would ask, well, how do you know it's not fun? Or how do you know it's boring if, if you've never been there yourself, if you never had that firsthand experience? And they replied, oh, like, we just read it online or like, you know, we just saw it on a YouTube video. And so I think sometimes that's kind of how we approach God. We might read that he is loving. We might read that he is merciful and forgiving, but none of this really means anything until we truly experience a relationship with him. And the great thing about this relationship or this fellowship is that this relationship is actually open to everyone. All people are invited to join in this fellowship or partnership with God in order to experience firsthand how exactly God is loving, how exactly God is faithful, or how exactly God is forgiving. It's no longer some sort of intellectual mystery that you have to wrestle through, but it becomes a lived and, most importantly, a perceived reality. And so we see that fellowship It's not just something that happens in church on a Sunday morning. It's actually really a way of life. It's living in the fellowship and partnership with God, whether you're at work, in the gym, walking around the block, going to school, going to get your groceries. It's to constantly seek God and to experience God wherever you may be and to learn more about him as he constantly works in the midst of your life. A fellowship as a way of life doesn't stop with God either, but also extends into our relationship with each other as well. As we begin to start another semester of small group, this is an opportunity to live a Christian life, not in isolation, but with a community, to be able to feed one another, not just physically, but to feed one another words of life, to be able to encourage one another, and give each other the hope of the gospel message outside of the church. It's a way to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And the thing is, John, he works diligently, absolutely diligently to foster this deep relationship, this deep fellowship with the people of the church, because John truly believes 
that it is only through the gospel message that true joy can be found. And I love that John kind of finishes this section uh, with the idea of joy because it reminds us of the importance of experiencing happiness and contentment in our Christian lives. Truly, you know, Christian Christianity truly is a religion of experience, uh, whether it is experiencing fellowship with one another or experiencing fellowship with God, or it might even be the experiencing of a deep-seated joy in our hearts as the Holy Spirit works in us. And the way that John presents this idea or this message of joy in our passage, it might actually be two different ways that he presents this. In our NIV translation, uh, we see that John says that he writes all of this to make our joy complete, right? He's talking about himself. I write all of this to make my joy complete. That as John shares the message of good news of eternal life and of genuine fellowship amongst believers and with God, John's joy is made complete, right? In one commentary by I. Howard Marshall, he writes that John has the heart of a pastor. That as John sees his sheep beginning to wander away, John cannot feel completely happy until his wandering sheep can once again experience the full blessings of the gospel. John desires to bring his people back into a deep fellowship with God, and John is entirely restless until this becomes a reality. See, the thing is, John, he cares deeply about the spiritual well-being of his fellow brothers and sisters. John has tasted and experienced the joy of Christian life, and as he sees his family in Christ turn away, John's heart is broken. And if this is what we see from a human being, how much more do we see in God's heart? How restless is God in his desire to bring us back into fellowship with him? And so when we read it or see it from this perspective, we see that the heart of John and of God as well is entirely selfless. They don't seek to bring the sheep back to him just so that he can feel the pride of being a leader or to say to other people, look at me, look at how many disciples I have. But the thing is, John and God, they both seek the good of the believers selflessly and they will work tirelessly to bring them back home to make their joy, their joy complete. The interesting thing about this verse is that certain Greek manuscripts kind of passed down through the ages. They have actually rendered this verse to also say, this is also another possible translation. We write this to make your joy complete. Um, if you actually have your physical Bibles with you or even through your phone, if you look all the way at the bottom, you might see a little footnote that kind of makes this clear. And what this suggests is that true joy, genuine joy, can only be found in a proper fellowship with God. Earlier, we talked about how this fellowship is an invitation to have a firsthand experience of our loving Father. But more than that, John is suggesting that everlasting satisfaction can only be found in this firsthand experience. See, in life, we often wander from curiosity to curiosity, don't we? Uh, seeking the next thing to bring us quote-unquote joy, uh, whether that's the next vacation getaway, 
the latest iPhone, the new video game that's coming out, or the new TV series that everyone's all hyped about. But what these things actually bring us is not joy. It's actually excitement. We are energized, we're hyped up, we have something to look forward to, but only for a little while until emptiness begins to rise again. And when we begin to experience that deep emptiness, what do we do? Do we turn to joy? Do we turn to God? We turn to something else that will excite us, something else that will hype us up for a few weeks, a few months, before again, the cycle repeats. But what joy is, is something entirely different than excitement. Joy is a sense of deep satisfaction. It is a sense of fulfillment and a sense of purposefulness. That as we fellowship with one another, we experience satisfaction, fulfillment, and purposefulness as we encourage each other and are encouraged in return, as we strengthen each other and are strengthened in return, and when we give and receive prayers for one another. But not only that, but as we have fellowship with God, we are also given satisfaction, fulfillment, and purposefulness that gives us joy as well. We're satisfied when we experience the unconditional love and grace from God that tells us, you are valued, you are cherished. I love you so much that I sent my own son to die for you. That is how much I love you. We experience purpose when we are given a mission larger than ourselves, and we are called to have a partnership with God to save the world alongside him. And of course, we experience fulfillment, like John, when our joy is made complete, as we witness lives, families, and communities being saved and changed. That is what brings joy in our lives. And so brothers and sisters, as we gather here today as one body, do we experience joy? Do we experience the joy of fellowship with one another or do we experience joy and fellowship with God? And if the answer to either or both of those questions is no, um, I invite you to come talk with me sometime this week and let us see how we can get you plugged in. And if it's a lack of joy in your fellowship with God, let's talk about that too. You see, the thing is, fellowship and joy, that's what allows us to see the beauty and goodness of God around us. And as your pastor, as your fellow brother in Christ, my joy is made complete in your joy. And so let us sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Let us mutually make our joys complete. Let us encourage one another and seek the joy of our fellow brothers and sisters here today. So I encourage you. Let's make a conscious effort sometime this week. Call someone up. Make your life, uh, sorry, call someone, call, uh, sorry, call someone up and tell them the hope of the gospel. Tell them the joy of the gospel so that our joy may be complete as well. But why don't we come together for a time of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've died for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have paid the price of our sin. And by doing so, you have invited us into fellowship with you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you love us unconditionally. We thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven all of our sins. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us despite our lack of faith in you. Um, Lord, you've, you've literally given us everything, even your own son, 
so that we can be invited into fellowship with you as your sons and as your daughters. And so we pray, Lord, that we will root this message deep into our hearts so that we can comprehend not, not just with our minds, but with our hearts as well, the vastness and deepness, deepness of your affections towards us. And out of this deep sense of inner joy, uh, we pray, Lord, that it will extend even further than that into our hands as we model our lives after you. So help us this week to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us to seek the joy of our fellow brothers and sisters here today. Encourage us uh, in our fellowship with one another. We pray this in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen.